If you will, please stand with me. The reading of, of God's Word to you, church, this Lord's Day, Acts 18, verses 18 through chapter 19, verse 10. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. At Sincrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he finished, or when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. You may be seated. This passage is about a way of life. A way of life. Do you know 
what is your way of life. I'm talking about more than what you want your way of life to be, but actually by your choices and the things you do day in and day out. What is your way of life? Now, a way of life is based upon a, a, a body of words or truths or convictions that you think describe for you what is the good life. And everyone has that group of truths that they then live their life according to. I remember as a very young child, I would hear about certain ways of life. People who aspired to, to just grow up or, or to raise little children to be productive citizens in our, in our community. Or, or others who were laboring and, and making their decisions every day based upon the idea that we need to give our children a better life than we had growing up. Or that we need to live the, uh, leave the world a, a better place than when, when we first found it. Uh, for some people, it is uh, more simply, I, I want to find out what pleases me. And I want to provide a way to do that. I want to retire early so that I can do that. And I want to do as much of that now as possible. Others have gone the other way and say, look, look, that, that's unrealistic and selfish. We just need to accept the hard things that come to us. What is your way of life? What is it that determines what you will do? Did you hear that phrase three times in our passage this morning? The way of God or the way of the Lord. This passage is about people being instructed in the way of the Lord and those who instruct others in the way of the Lord. Sermon in a sentence is this. The way of the Lord advances as the Lord's people are instructed. We're in a book that is all about the spread of the Lord's name, the advance of His ways. And that mission is accomplished when God's people are instructed. So let's look at Three scenes where we see this truth. The first one is in verses 18 through 23. We see a missionary on the move. A missionary on the move. I'm not going to say much about these verses. I think this is primarily bringing us to the point in the book of Acts where Paul has just left Corinth. And and what what the author of the, the book is doing is he's bringing to a close Paul's second missionary journey, and he's starting in verses 22 and 23, his third and final missionary journey. Paul is advancing the way of the Lord by instructing the people. Do you see how it's just summarized there in verse 23 that what Paul's doing, especially in the last missionary trip, is he's especially focused on strengthening all the disciples with the truth. Verse 21, though, he says to the people in Ephesus, and that is where he will primarily spend this last 
missionary journey that he will be on is in the city of Ephesus. And, and our passage is, is, is about the activities that happened through Paul and Apollos in the city of Ephesus. But what he says to the people in verse 21 is, I will, I am leaving you, city of Ephesus, church in Ephesus, and I will come back to you if God wills. Paul is laying out this example for us that, that once you come to know Jesus as Savior, then, then our will is no longer the God of us. What we want is no longer what determines what we'll do. He will come back only if God wills. And what we'll see in chapter 19, verse 1, is God wills that he comes back. Let's turn to verses 24 through 28. And see, secondly, an accurate teacher. Point number two is an accurate teacher. Verses 24 through 26, this man, a Jew named Apollos, is discipled in Ephesus. The, the author introduces this man with, with so many encouraging phrases. He's eloquent. He is competent in the scriptures. He is instructed, here's the first occurrence, in the way of God. That, that word instructed means catechized. It is the word catechized. That's a, that's a word that Christians have used since this writing, uh, to represent what, what discipleship is. It is a, a sitting someone down and, and, and it is at least this, explaining the basics of the faith. And so whenever you come and you sit under the preaching of God's word, you are being instructed or catechized. You are being given the, the beliefs that we need in order to live in the Lord. I'm excited about getting to, getting back to a fuller service very soon. And, and, and there are certain Sundays where we will even do more catechism where we're, 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 we're talking about lines from a, a, a historic creed or we're asking questions that the saints have, have, have answered over the years. I want to encourage you that the, the way of the Lord advances when His people are instructed. I want to encourage you to catechize. I want to encourage you to be about the work of Apollos and Paul and all the church of, of Acts and instruct others in the way of the Lord that they might live. You might do this with your children. Maybe, maybe set aside five minutes every morning and go through a catechism that asks basic questions of the faith and teaches the answers to them. That the way of the Lord might advance even in your own home. But Luke's not done. As he's speaking about this great hero of the faith, Apollos, he says that he is fervent in spirit. That means he was boiling in his spirit. Uh, What is it that he's burning with? It is a zeal, it says, to preach Jesus. Oh, that God would say that about me. Oh, that God would say that about you, that we are just boiling inside to get the message of Jesus out. When he's preaching, though, notice Priscilla and Aquila, those tent makers who Paul lived with back in Corinth, are there 
and they experience him. I want you to notice this in verse 25. He is teaching accurately, but as they listen to him in the synagogue, he's not accurate enough. Some really important lessons here for correction. Christians sign up not only for heaven, but for correction. Three things. Number one, when Priscilla and Aquila hear that that Apollos is teaching wrongly about baptism, does baptism matter? They take him to the side and they correct him. Now, this is commendable uh, because this would be honoring to him. They hear him teaching incorrectly in public, but they bring him to the side and do this in private. I think that putting him in a position to receive the truth, they have figured out how might he best hear this. Second thing we learn about correction in Christians is you can be saved and significantly wrong. You can be saved and very wrong about the things you think you're right about. Do you know who introduced your pastor to the Trinity? It was a Muslim. It was a Muslim after I was a Christian. I'd been a Christian for a couple of weeks. I played soccer for my college, and we were going to a soccer game, and one of the players was Muslim, another one was Catholic. We were all uh, talking about Jesus. And uh, the Muslim heard me and the Catholic, the genuine Christian, and I don't know if the the Catholic was a Christian or not, but um, the Muslim heard me say that Jesus was the Son of God, and he said, yeah, that's the... That's the thing I can't get, get over is that, is that Jesus is actually God. I said, well, well hold on. He's, he's the son of God. And the Catholic helped me out here and said, yeah, he's the son of God. I denied that he was God to try to make it easier for the Muslim to accept. And he said, hold on a minute. There is no Christian I've ever talked to who has said what you just said. Jesus is God is what you believe. And I just silenced myself at that point and thought, maybe the Muslim knows something. And I I started researching really quickly and immediately found that he was true. I was saved. And part of showing that I was saved is I immediately turned to the truth. But I was significantly wrong. And in your Christian life, you will be significantly wrong about things. And the most important thing to do is what Apollos is open to do is for others to sit you down and teach you about the truth and for you to turn to it. And even when that thing is a significant thing you're wrong about, that doesn't mean you just got saved. That's part of the point too. But this is part of the natural process of growing as a Christian. The third thing I want you to see is that where the truth of Christ is concerned You can never be too accurate. Oh, I'm really concerned about anyone who professes to be a Christian who's not concerned with accuracy in what they believe. Who's not really concerned about getting deep in the things of God. 
who says oh, people disagree about this topic. Therefore, I don't have to study it. Oh, these are the things of Christ. These truths are the body of beliefs that lead us to heaven and lead us to God himself. These are the things that God has revealed in his own word. And he hasn't said two things about the same topic. He says one thing about a topic. It is his word. And we love him. And we love the truth. And so you can never be too accurate when it comes to the truths of Christ. We have to be precise about these things, church. Verse 25, notice what it says there. He was teaching accurately. And verse 26, he gets pulled aside so that he would teach more accurately. These things matter. God says his goal for us Christian. Listen, what does God want for the Christian? What does God want for you? Oh, not in this church do we believe your best life now. Not in this church do we believe health, wealth, and prosperity now. And not in this church do we only believe that he's going to receive us into heaven. What does he want for you now? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. God is moving us to attain to the unity of the faith. Of the knowledge of the Son of God. He wants us all to have one belief, one faith, and to grow in knowing His Son, to mature. That's what it means to mature as a Christian, to grow in knowing Christ. So we have to know Him, or else we will be tossed aside like children in the ocean and carried away by deceit. That's what happens to people who are not concerned with the things of faith. And so he says, my goal for you is to, to speak the truth and love to one another, to grow in every way into him who is the Christ. Where truth of Christ is concerned, you can never be too accurate. I want you to see in the text itself, the very words of the text, how important it is for you, saint, to become more and more accurate. We pray about all kinds of things. We've got decisions in front of us. We may make some big purchase or, or we have some concern about how some sickness is going to affect us. We should pray about all kinds of things. We want to know what the will of God is for us. But Paul tells us very clearly what the will of God is in First Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, this is the will of God for you. Do you want to know what it is? That you become holy. You become sanctified. Jesus, before he went to the cross, he prayed this to the Father. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is important to become more and more accurate in the truth and by the truth. So when you hear the title of the sermon is instruction in the way, don't get it twisted. Don't be twisting my sermon title. I don't, I'm not trying to say we're a church who, who thinks instruction just gets in the way of the Christian life. No. Uh, Luke 
Even at the very beginning of his gospel in Luke chapter 1, he used the same word, accuracy, in saying, I am writing this gospel. I am writing this second letter to you, the book of Acts. So for this very reason to a Christian that you may have an accurate account of the Christ. God believes that individual Christians like Theophilus, the one this book is written to, hold churches like the church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, the church in Graham, need accurate accounts of the truth. It is essential to our spiritual health. Beloved, I know this is something we believe and cherish in this church, but never forget the word gives life. And that's because the word really does bring us to the giver of life. Accurate instruction is the way we get to God. Our souls cannot live without it. So please, I I, want to thank you. I don't know how many of you pray for me. I know you, you do. Many of you do. And I want to thank you so much. Really, this is the greatest ministry you can do for your pastor. Pray. I want to ask daily. Pray every week for sure, for accurate teaching. But not just from me, from anyone who opens the Bible in this church. Pray for accurate teachers. Pray for yourself. You need this. Your soul will die without it. Pray for you to have accurate understanding and for the humility of Apollos to be taken aside by this couple after he got behind the pulpit and be corrected by them. The measure of a Christian's maturity, listen, you want to know how mature you are? It is not shown until you're told no. And in a similar way, the path to becoming more and more mature is laid with bricks of not resisting, but instead receiving correction. Last thing I want to say about this before moving on. Accuracy. This comes from Dane Ortland, the author of Gentle and Lowly. The whole reason we care about sound doctrine is for the sake of preserving God's beauty. We preserve accuracy so that we might see God and not miss God in His beauty. It's the same reason we would care about, Ortland says, effective focal lenses on a camera. It's to capture with precision the beauty we photograph. I want to encourage this. So let me encourage you to, let me encourage you all to have a question that you ask after church on Sunday. Let me encourage you all with a second question that you answer when you gather every week at Midweek Manor. The first question you should ask after church is, what did God teach you about Jesus today? 
I'm not just talking about private reflections. Ask that of another person who heard the same sermon. What did God teach you about him? And then come on Wednesday night ready to answer this question. How did I grow in my knowledge of God and my love for him? And share that. And then it will encourage everyone else. In verses 27 and 28, Apollos goes from being discipled in Ephesus. And now he's further equipped to go to Corinth and disciple others in Achaia. Third point, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, we have a better baptism. We have a missionary on the move. We have an accurate teacher. And then we have a better baptism. Apollos has now left Ephesus. God now reassigns Paul to go back to Ephesus. That's his will. And Paul gets there and he's all been out of shape about baptism. Good heavens with the baptism. He finds these disciples in verse 1. I think these probably are not disciples of Jesus, but a group of people who instead are disciples of God in an Old Testament kind of way, just based upon what they have heard, what they do believe. They have, they're students of God. That's what disciple means. Though they, they were baptized into John's baptism. They, and even though they were baptized into John's baptism, it's like they didn't hear a word John said, because every time Luke, says something about John. He tells us what John said about his baptism in Acts, in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, in Acts chapter 11, verse 16. Everywhere Luke gets a chance to talk about this man, he says things that these disciples have never heard. Listen, John says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Paul's all been out of shape when he finds the disciples in Ephesus because there's a better baptism than they have any clue about. There is a better immersion than they know about. There is a better representative right at the beginning of the Christian faith. And why are you getting so upset? They've been baptized. They were baptized in John's baptism, which verse 4, Paul says that was a baptism of repentance. Let me tell you what is going on with John's baptism. When he shows up on the scene at the beginning of the Gospels, what he's doing is he's fulfilling what was promised in Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, hang with me now, the people of God had left him. They had given themselves to false gods. They were no longer listening to his teaching. And so God kicked them out of his presence. And he said, if you want me to come back, then someone needs to prepare the way and you need to turn back to me if I'm going to return to you. And John the Baptist calls people to the Jordan and says, come back to him. Turn back. It's a baptism of repentance to show that you want God to come back. And so Paul says in verse 4, that doesn't matter anymore once he's come back. Don't keep getting baptized in John's baptism once the one you were wanting to return has returned. 
The Baptist, he says, put you in water. Jesus was promised to pour the Spirit in you, and He does. Because Jesus has now accomplished His work. He died on a cross for the sins of His people. And He was raised from the dead to cleanse their hearts of sin and fill their hearts with righteousness. You know what that is? A heart that has no sin and is full of righteousness is a place where God can live. And that's why God can send, Jesus can send the Holy Spirit and pour the Spirit in the people of God. I want to instruct you for a moment. According to God's Word, what is so gospel? What is such good news about what Paul ends up preaching to the church or these disciples in Ephesus? What is so good about God's Son giving God's Spirit? I'm instructing you. Because Christians are concerned with just, with, with knowing more about God than just that He keeps us from hell. What is so good about it? Five things. One, the Spirit of God actually opens our mind to hear the truth of God. I heard a friend, or I read a friend, uh, uh, do, do this on Facebook recently where he said, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know. I don't know where he got this. I know where he got that. Jesus loves me, this I know. This is the part I don't know where he got. Jesus loves me, this I know. But this I would never have prized if the Spirit of God had not opened my eyes. You cannot understand the language of God unless the Spirit of God comes and Jesus gives the Spirit of God. Number two, He convicts us of sin. What a great gift to a Christian that God will not let us be happy in ignoring Him or rebelling against Him. And not only that, when He's inside of us, He's removing ungodliness from us and He's growing us in godliness. He's putting the fruit of the Spirit in us and removing the works of the flesh. He works out what we actually hate and He works in what we actually love. He is the seal of our inheritance. This is why he's saying, why are you just following John? You don't even know what John taught. The guy who he, he said was so great has come, and he has actually poured out a spirit who seals your inheritance, guarantees that you will never lose eternal life when you receive the Spirit of God. And, and while you are waiting for the inheritance in full, he is assuring you all the way of your adoption. That's the fifth thing from Romans chapter 8. The Spirit can come inside of you and give you confidence that the Father in heaven loves you and will keep you. Paul is saying to them, if that is what you want, Jesus is who you need. Because Jesus gives the Spirit whenever you believe in him. So, verse 5, they hear it, and those who receive it are rebaptized. Nope. Don't say rebaptism in my presence ever again. There's no such thing as a rebaptism. There's one baptism. And when you are baptized like they are baptized here in verse 5, in the name of Jesus Christ, which they had never had before, that may be called a similar word. 
It's done for the first time. And this is so good because John's baptism, remember, he was saying, you come back. You show how much you, need, you want God. That's not what Jesus' baptism says. Jesus' baptism says, God came for me. God lived my righteousness. God took my unrighteousness. God took my death and God was raised from the dead. He did it all. I'm just being baptized to show I believe in him. And that's so much better. And so in verse six, they have the same signs we saw back at Pentecost in Acts chapter two. The same signs that we saw, not in everyone, but But then again, when the gospel first went to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And then there's been lots of people saved. And we didn't see these signs there either, but we see them here. Perhaps because every time we have a new category of person coming to Christ, we get the signs that verify, like Pentecost. In other words, these signs don't happen for everyone who gets the Spirit. And there is no longer a need for these signs to happen now. It's just when the gospel is going out afresh in the book of Acts. Look back in verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them. And took the disciples with him. All the word is gone. Reasoning daily instead with the Gentiles in the hall of Tyrannus. Listen. Speak evil of the way. And the way will be offered to others. The way. Here's the third occurrence of this phrase. Did you notice a difference though in verse 9? The way is capitalized. The way is capitalized. The way has roots in in the Old Testament. The way uh, in the time of Moses was a reference to uh, a life that had been shaped by the law of God. Listen to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 5. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live. Okay, so he's saying it is a life that is formed by the law, and he's also saying the only way you get life is by the law. That's what he's saying. That that when God gives commands, they're always good. Listen to me. God's ways are always good. How much life do you want? How much life do you want? You want the fullness of all that the Creator can give you in life? Well, you've got to be people who know the way. Well, the way is mentioned again in the book of Isaiah. And there, Isaiah starts promising that God is going to save His people again in this new exodus. He's going to make a way. He says, back to himself, Isaiah chapter 30 says this, a teacher is going to come to to my unbelieving people, excuse me, 
and he will whisper to them, this is the way. And then Isaiah 35, he then unpacks that a little bit more and he said, the way is a way of holiness. It is a highway to God. This is the way. And it will make you holy so you can be with God. And there have been, God has kept his word. There have been teachers who are whispering. John said, the Baptist said, when he was baptizing Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus comes on the scene and he starts teaching. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one will come to the Father but through me. And Apollos came along whispering the instruction in chapter 18, verse 28, when he said, Jesus is the Christ. And Paul, here again, in chapter 19, verse 4, said, the one who was supposed to come after John has come, and it is Jesus. And then in verse 8, he starts teaching about the kingdom of God, and he's certainly teaching about the king, God, Jesus. And so if you're here, And you do not follow the Lord Jesus with all of your life. If he is not your life. Verse 9 has something to say for you. Those who became stubborn. And continued in unbelief. They came in unbelieving. They heard the truth. And they became stubborn. It's the word that's used of Pharaoh when he hardened his heart. and said, I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. And God crushed him. And, and the very next words that John the Baptist said in Luke chapter 3, after saying, the one who comes after me is mightier than I, and he will baptize you with the Spirit. He then said the very next words, he said, if you won't be baptized with the Spirit, you will be burned by him in unquenchable fire. There is an urgency right now for you to believe in the Lord Jesus, to turn from your sins. And if you do, he will make you live. The way, the way in verse 9 is one of Luke's favorite verses or favorite words to describe our religion more than six times in, in this book. Does he use that phrase just to represent Christianity? So Acts chapter 9, verse 2, just one of these examples. It says that disciples, listen, disciples are those who belong to the way. And disciples not only belong to the way, not just listen to the way, think about the way, are friendly to the way, belong to the way. But disciples are also those who become targets because of the way. In every occurrence, there is this devotion of Christians to the way of Christ. And in every occurrence, there are enemies. Which tells you something that we are witnessing now in our day. There is no such thing as a casual Christian. No such thing as a part-time, partial disciple of Christ. 
No such thing as a seasonal Christian. Trials tell the truth. And, and what concerns me about the trial that Christians are under, whether it's the, the, the last year that made it really easy not to devote ourselves to the Lord, or the things that are going on in our culture that make it really hard to devote ourselves to the Lord. Both of those things concern me about anyone who's professing Christ in a casual way. The way is a body of beliefs that creates habits of holiness. Christianity is a way of all of life. It is a road that the true Christian never leaves because it is leading to the destination that we just can't wait to get to. Why should you belong, be possessed by, and devoted to the way? I just want to close with this encouragement. Belong to the way because of who the way is about. The way of the Lord. Because of who the way is. So that you need this so that if everyone around you leaves, you will not. The Lord Jesus is the way. He is not only the door that the sheep walk through to get to God, but He is also the good shepherd who guards the ignorant and the wayward and the threatened sheep. Stay on the way because the Lord who is the way is the firstborn from the dead. He is the head who directs the church that He gave Himself for. He is the groom who we cherish. He is our advocate who is right there to silence the accuser every time we sin against God. He is the prophet who we trust. He is the priest who is praying for you, Christian, right now. And he's better than every other priest who has ever come or has ever come since because he had no sins that he needed blood to sacrifice for. And he's a better priest because he gave a better sacrifice. He is the lamb himself who took our place on the cross. And he is the king. He is the lion who is leading us now. He is our redeemer from sin, the deliverer from the present evil world, the disarmer of demons, the conqueror of death. Jesus is the champion of heaven, and he's going to lead many sons to glory there. It is his life that we aspire to. It is his glory we live for, and it is his love we live from, and it's his face we long to see. And he's coming for us, saints. Don't leave the way. Father in heaven, we pray that you would cause us to be a church who is faithful because we're filled with people who are given faith by you. Lord Jesus, your way advances as your people are instructed. So would you instruct us by your spirit? We pray all this in Jesus name. Amen.